Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, as I'm sure you have noticed, if you've been reading the papers or watching CNN or any other news outlet, the shocking college admissions bribery scandal that has led to criminal charges against wealthy parents, I mean extremely wealthy parents, continued to grab our attention. And more has come out about how celebrities and corporate executives and others, mostly from California, paid coaches, SAT proctors, and others to get their kids into prestigious colleges like the University of Southern California, Stanford, and UCLA, uh, USC, particularly in the crosshairs on this one. Speaking of UCLA, University of California President Janet Napolitano has ordered an internal investigation into any UC involvement in the operations run by that crooked private admissions consultant out of Southern California. This week, we'll talk to a guidance counselor at a nonprofit organization that tutors and guides low-income high school students from Los Angeles about their views on the scandal. We'll also speak with EdSource reporter Larry Gordon about the progress, or lack of it, that the California community colleges are making towards an ambitious five-year plan to increase graduation rates and transfer rates to CSU and the University of California. But first, the impact of teacher strikes in Los Angeles and Oakland continued to be felt as people look at the fine print in the contracts that were signed and districts try to get themselves out of financial trouble. In both Los Angeles and Oakland, the county superintendent of schools is playing a key role in getting districts in their jurisdiction on track. This week, we caught up with Alameda County Superintendent of Schools, Karen Monroe, to find out how things are going in Oakland. Even though we don't have the official data yet that breaks down all of the numbers, which we will have in a couple of weeks, we know that there's no way any agreement that is anywhere near what we're looking at right now is going to work without commensurate cuts. Uh, And as as you know from following Oakland's board meeting, the board has been uh, focusing on what the level of those cuts needs to be, Um, where some of those cuts are going to be, debating what uh, are the key priorities that they hope to preserve uh, during these uh, deep cuts that need to be made. But uh, just as uh, with the question about what other districts are wrestling with, districts are wrestling with wanting to be able to pay their teachers a living wage, particularly in a place like the Bay Area that is so difficult um, to continue to live in on a teacher's salary And in order to do that, there are some very hard, very difficult trade-offs that are needing to be made. A lot of people are saying, and teachers are certainly saying that, that the state has to come up with more money or that local taxpayers have to come up with more money in order to deal with this situation. Do you think that is essential or is there a way to get through this without the state and additional tax measures implemented? Yes. So the answer is yes and no. Yes, I think it is essential. And no, I don't think we get there without more funding uh, to close the gap. California is near the bottom in per-pupil funding. What we'll continue to see is these fights over limited resources, people who absolutely are advocating for being paid more, people who should be paid more, and districts who lack the resources to uh, provide the kinds of increases that are being requested. So there is just too small a pot Uh, In fact, on April 3rd, there's a critical mass of us, hundreds of people from the 18 school districts in Alameda County will be converging on Sacramento 
to actually make our voice heard. Um, so it's the uh, East Bay Coalition for Education is going to be traveling there uh, at noon on um, April 3rd and both meeting with legislators and having a rally uh, on the steps of the Capitol to really uh, bring this home and to uh, really make our voices heard for some of the legislation that's already been proposed and for some of the creative solutions that we think legislators should be leading for now to make sure our public education system is adequately funded. Thanks for speaking with us today, Superintendent. Look forward to uh, staying in touch with you on this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Karen Monroe, Superintendent of Schools in Alameda County, about the situation in Oakland and what, if anything, can be done. You know, Lewis, competition to get into America's premier colleges has been intense for decades. Parents who can afford it have hired SAT tutors and essay coaches. They've sent their kids to summer programs to pad their kids' resume for college. But the admissions scheme that unraveled this month is stunning in its brazenness and its deceit. And for low-income kids, without the connections and financial advantages who might have taken the seats of students who don't deserve to be in the universities like USC, it's exasperating. Probably more than exasperating in some cases. And uh, to talk to us about that, we have on the line Tina Kim. She's site director for the Boyle Heights neighborhood in Los Angeles for College Track. That's a nonprofit after-school program that guides low-income mostly from diverse backgrounds, to help them get into college and starting with them in high school and then staying with them throughout college. I asked Tina to talk about what College Track does and tell us a little bit more about the students that she and others work with. College Track is a national college completion program. Um, we are serving low-income first-generation students. The vast majority of them are students of color. Um, here in Boyle Heights, about 95% of our students are Latino, Latina. Um, more than 90% come from first-generation families where they'll be the first to be college graduates, um, and the vast majority are also low-income. So we fit the, the profile um, of the students that College Track is serving. Um, we work with students for 8 to 10 years because we know that simply supporting students to get into college isn't enough. Uh, so many of our students without the additional support would be able to start college, but they wouldn't finish college. And so we're really focused on getting them to that finish line of a college degree. Well, you must know your students and your families pretty well. How have they reacted to the revelations about so-called Operation Varsity Blues as the undercover operation was, was named? I think that um, so many of our families are not surprised. It's not that they... I don't think that anyone believed that everyone who gets into college gets in solely based on merit. Um, I think what was surprising were, were the details and the lengths that some of these parents went to to have their students admitted into these prestigious universities. Um, our students and families are living um, in systems, you know, in, in systems of oppression, right, that don't give them the same access to the, to the opportunities that, that other folks have. So some of them, I'm assuming, are seeking spots into places like USC and mm -hmm. UCLA, the same schools that indirectly or directly involved in this. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a number of students apply to very competitive colleges and universities like USC. One of the students that I talked to, she just said, you know, had I not heard about this and I found out I got rejected from a school, I would have thought to myself, 
another student must have deserved it more. You know, like they must have had uh, better scores or tests, uh, test scores or GPA or maybe been made more contributions to their community. And she says, so now I know that if I get rejected, I'm, there's going to be this other uh, wondering that I have, which feels really bad because I know that I've done everything I could. And if I known that wasn't enough, that's one thing. But it's, it feels really different to know that it could have been something that I had absolutely no access to even compete with when parents are, are, are bribing coaches and, and whatnot. Do you see this as a, as a long-term impact on your students? Will they always wonder if they didn't get into a place they wanted to get into? Gee, I wonder who illegitimately got my spot, so to speak. Um, one of the things that really struck me when my student was, uh, one of my students I was talking to her was that she just said, you know, I don't have any way in except the front door. And even that is really hard. Right. Like being coming from a community like Boyle Heights, simply getting to the front door is hard enough. And then to find out that there is these side and back doors is frustrating. And she also named, you know, I, I often feel that like when I get to college, people are going to wonder if I got in because I'm a student of color. They're going to doubt whether I deserve to be there. And I'm seen as like one of this whole group of kids who may not deserve it. But are these kids who did get in because their parents lied and cheated going to be seen as part of a larger group or are they going to be considered as individuals? Like that was just a one-off. And so there's a double standard there um, and that they're already perceiving. So I think it's something that at least in this point in time, students who are old enough to recognize the way it, it's going to um, impact their own futures, I think they'll carry it forward, not just in college admissions, but in all kinds of things. Um, so it's something to, to be very real about, not to hide from students and say, it's, it's not a big deal or it's just a couple families. Uh, I think it's a, a larger societal um, flaw that we face. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tina. I can understand now why it's so important for you to continue working with your students through college, through these issues that they deal with on a daily basis. And we're all hoping that the door becomes wider. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much. That was Tina Kim, the College Track Site Director for the Boyle Heights neighborhood in Los Angeles. Well, let's shift away from these elite colleges and talk about the California Community College System, which really is pretty much an open door, a real effort in California to democratize education, to bring in kids and students who don't have the advantages and privileges of the students who've been implicated in the scandal Three years ago, the new chancellor at the time, Chancellor Eloy Oakley, put together a pretty impressive document. It was called Vision for Success, in which they outlined some very ambitious goals for both getting students to the finish line quickly in terms of the two-year degree and certificates and other credentials offered by the community colleges, as well as the transfer rates to the University of California and the California State University. This past week, Chancellor Oakley gave a speech, it was called State of the System, looking at what's been accomplished so far. And we asked Larry Gordon, our higher education reporter based in Los Angeles, to talk a little bit about what Chancellor Oakley had to say. The overall picture is that they're still falling far, far short of their goals. The two most important goals have to do with the total number of students earning credentials or degrees and the number of students who are transferring from California community colleges to either UC or to the CSU. And in both, they, they, they've made very tiny progress. Let's just clarify. 
the target that the community colleges set was to see a 20% increase in the number of students who get the associate's degrees, credentials, and other certificates, and a 35% rise in the number of transfer students to UC or CSU. Right. So um, how are they doing on both of those key measures? Well, on the first, the rise in overall credential and degrees, they barely moved the clock's hand this year. You know, this is the first year of measuring, and they actually increased those numbers by less than 1%, by, you know, less than 200 students. Um, so, you know, they, it's a five-year plan. They have until the end of the 2021-22 um, school year. So they have, you know, quite a ways to go. And on the other issue, you know, they, they raised 3%, the number of students who successfully transferred to UC and CSU. So that's better. But, you know, they still have quite a ways to go on that as well. So, but I guess what um, Ch- Chancellor Oakley um, has talked about is that many of the reforms that they've put in are just now kind of kicking in so that they expect some of the big growth to happen in the next few years. Because a lot of those measurements from this year did not yet reflect the students who may benefit by some of the new degree programs, some of the extra counseling, and uh, some of the new so-called guided pathways that uh, keep students on track to get their diplomas and and their credentials. So they're saying that, you know, they're expecting better progress ahead, even though they're lamenting, you know, what the what the numbers were so far this year. Well, Larry, this is a very decentralized system with 114 colleges, each with its own board. And right. is there a blueprint in every school or is it just a sort of an overall mandate? I mean, that's really the crux of the argument, I think, and how they carry this about. Unlike the University of California, unlike the CSU, the central administration at the California Community Colleges is not very powerful. So they cannot necessarily force their way on these issues the way the UC and CSU has have more power on. There are 115 colleges, 72 districts governing that, and some do incredibly well. You know, Santa Monica College, Pasadena College, they do great on transferring. Other places do not do well. So some of it is uh, the programs at the school, and some of it is also, you know, the student body, who they're serving, whether whether some of these students are more likely through life challenges to, to drop out, whether they're more likely to transfer. So it's an incredible amount of variety. So this is a pretty serious issue. I mean, we have so many students who are trying to get their college educations through the community colleges and uh, then go on to the four-year university. So if we're not making much progress, that that really kind of puts a bit of a, a shadow over the whole public education system, doesn't it? It does. I mean, there are uh, two million students enrolled in California community colleges. Admittedly, a lot of those are part-time. They may never transfer. But up, up until recently, both at the community colleges and at Cal State, you know, they weren't really paying that much attention to the outcomes. You know, in the past few years, particularly since the budget crunch after the recession, the universities and the legislature and the governor and the, and the public is really paying attention to what's our money producing, you know, as well as the human potential that could be lost, you know, all the, all the students who don't progress. That was... EdSource's higher education reporter, Larry Gordon. 
Lewis, before we leave this week, uh, President Trump signed an executive order regarding free speech on college campuses. And of course, none other than the University of California, Berkeley, was the focus of his attention. Tell us, what was that all about? Well, just uh, ex- extraordinary that last month there was an incident at Berkeley where somebody from the conservative right was on campus. He got punched by somebody who wasn't even a student. And President Trump turned this into a big issue that somehow free speech wasn't protected at the University of California at Berkeley. But I think, as most of you know out there, UC Berkeley actually stands for free speech. I mean, this was where the free speech movement started in 1964. And what's been happening for uh, last several years, the conservative right has been trying to provoke the university and to try to make it out as if the university is against having conservatives on campus. And really what's happened is that the, the people involved in this, in all of these well-known incidents, are not students, either the speakers or the protesters, or the ones who have resorted to violence on the campus. And the university has had to spend millions of dollars, literally. Last year, they spent $4 million when Milo Yiannopoulos, who was somebody from the conservative right, and I mean, not even that well-known, came to campus and outside provocateurs caused a lot of damage on campus. And the university had to spend millions of dollars in order to allow this event to proceed. It fits the conservative narrative that college campuses are hostile to conservative speakers. Well, and, and uh, the issue that it raises is, is a university required to spend unlimited funds to make it possible for any student group who invites anyone, even if they know it's going to cause violence or trigger protests from non-students, that the university has to spend whatever it takes to allow those people to come and speak on campus? And UC Berkeley has suffered from a budget deficit in the last few years. And so now they're spending millions of dollars on funds which arguably should be going to pay for professors, teaching assistants, and so on. Well, Lewis, more to come for sure, more to come. (laughs) I think you're right on that prediction, John. And uh, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 